Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. Hi there, thanks for choosing to listen to us today. Welcome to the show where we've been marking the Euros zonally throughout the competition. And today, the ZM Euros notebook will be opened and closed one last time on this podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, and with me today, an experienced major tournament writer with a consistent performance level, a recognisable style, never gets too high, never too low either. Truly the Leonardo Bonucci of Euro's digital content, Michael Cox. Michael, how are you getting on? How's things? Very good. Thank you for that very kind introduction, Ali. <laughs> no worries at all. Wait for this one. With us, Michael and I, is someone who made this his tournament debut in a professional context. He brought youth, invention, composure and work ethic, always had an, had an answer in tough situations and surely someone with a hell of a future ahead of him. Tom Warville, the Pedri of Euros digital content. Hello, Tom. Wow, thanks, Ali. Hello, how's it going? <laughs> good, good. I'm glad we didn't record this on Monday because I think uh, on a number of levels we are in uh, a better position to talk about the European Championship final at Wembley, which Italy won 3-2 on penalties to become the champions of Europe. We're going to open the notebook, talk tactics, strategy, uh, individual players, uh, and then we'll have a little overview of the tournament as a whole. A team of the tournament we will discuss later on. Uh, it's going to be a hard discussion for us. Let's start with one real positive for England. Michael, when you switch from 4-2-3-1 to 3-4-3, when you bring in a wing-back in Trippier for a winger in Saka, and then after two minutes... Trippier assists the other wing-back for a goal uh, to put you ahead. That must feel pretty good. Southgate would have been feeling good about himself at that point. What was his general thinking, do you think, behind the switch, behind moving to 3-4-3 for this final? Well, I think it probably was a defensive move, wasn't it? Italy form a bit of a front five when they're attacking with Emerson pushing forward, and he did that here, did it quite well here at times. So I assume he just wanted a solid defender in, in Trippier to stop him rather than 
Saka who would have had to track back from a, a higher starting position. But yeah, brilliant opening. I mean, it was one of those goals that was so quick. Tactical pattern hadn't really settled down yet. There was no real formation battle to, to speak of at that point. But obviously, uh, early energy, early momentum and an early goal. Um, and obviously, the, the disappointment for England's perspective was uh, that they didn't build on that and really seemed to... A bit of a cliche, but almost felt they scored too early because they immediately set back, uh, sat back and defended for the rest of the game really like it was the final 10-15 minutes I thought but yeah you sorry you wanted us to be positive that was a very positive opening you're right I think Southgate's use of Trippy has definitely been a, an underrated part of his management of this tournament I mean I feel it dominated the I guess the early stories for England of the, of, of the competition around starting him on the left and why you do that and it's something myself and Michael wrote about in those in those opening weeks um, but yeah I thought yesterday that was kind of a Again, Southgate seemingly picking the right starting formation, at least, of each of his games, just because they've not had to... England haven't really been behind for that long at all. They've not really struggled at the start of games. It's probably more within a match where it's happened. Uh, Michael, from that point, though, from the second minute, two hours of football uh, until the penalty shootout started, and from your piece that you wrote on The Athletic this week, it seems like your focus, your analysis, looks less at tactics from that point and more about general themes of strategy and, and I suppose, at, at one very basic level, intent. Yeah, I mean... I was surprised he went with the back five, but probably wasn't a bad um, situation once England's gone ahead. You had an extra defender really to defend the lead, but I thought really the issue was that they just defended. I mean, there was no real intention to counter-attack at all. And and yeah, that's what my article was about with the help of Tom and some, some handy stats about you know England's approach when they're winning 1-0 throughout the tournament. They never really went for a second goal in the games against Croatia, Czech Republic, and certainly not here. And... I just thought they were very panicked when they won the ball. Italy counter-pressed well and, and regained possession quickly, but a couple of times England were just thumping clearances downfield. Um, and you don't really see top sides doing that much anymore. I mean, obviously in some situations you have to clear the ball, but if you win the ball 25, 30 yards out, you know, top sides use that as an opportunity to counter-attack. And with all the speed in this squad, some of it being on the pitch... I just thought that this was a great situation for England to, to get some speed going forward, get Sterling running at uh, Chiellini on the outside. You know, Jorginho and Verratti, brilliant technical players, but neither of them very mobile. And I just think England missed an opportunity to, to, to attack, really, and, and to score maybe a second or third goal. And it worked defensively and, and going forward as well. Not only would a second goal have been handy, I think if he'd given Italy something going the other way, they're less inclined to throw men forward into attack. So that's the biggest disappointment of the game for me, not necessarily the penalties. I think it's not a lottery, but you can lose on penalties. But just England's failure to really take advantage of what was a great situation to get that early goal. It's funny because there were times, and I think Michael highlighted it really well in his piece with, I think, Rice. And uh, Rice, there was a couple of examples in particular where he's won the ball back and he's booted downfield to clear it to no one, really. And it's one where... When you're watching it in the moment, like I remember actively celebrating those moments thinking this is good. And then you look back and you've actually got a more sober, clearer head on and thinking, hmm, you know, you're wasting opportunities here to actually use the ball and, and try and progress upfield. So that for me is one of the things that I've probably you know changed my mind about <laughs> from watching the game back from from going through it again and thinking, yeah, I think Michael really hit the nail on the head there. Penalties is the huge talking point, of course it is, but really at the end of the day, the strategy is far more questionable of you know of the 90 minutes of the 120 minutes versus who the penalty takers were. Tom, in the 
well, in the world of, of, of analysts, data analysts, data-driven analysis, easy for you to say, uh, is there a, a sort of consensus with regard to this word intent? And by that, I, I, I guess I mean how to approach being a goal app at different stages of the game. In this example, very early on in the game, the balance, I suppose, between going for a second goal to extend your league lead and make it even more probable that you will win because we know that the first goal gives teams circus 75% uh, win rate, something like that, versus protecting your lead and making sure that you don't give it up. Uh, is it to do with game state, with how long is to go? Has there been work done on this front? Yeah, I think this is one of those questions a bit like I've had it before in the past, people saying, you know, if you win more of your duels, are you more likely to win? Or if you pick up more second balls, are you more likely to, again, more likely to win? Are you more likely to score more? And I think to try and answer questions like that or think that the key to winning football matches lies in a kind of binary yes, no, if you do more of this, you win more games, ignores the fact that football is so complex and so continuous and at times difficult to analyse. So I think a lot of it depends on the context of the game the quality of players you have available at you, like can you can you feasibly sit back and can you defend for that long? Like are you good enough to suppress shots in that way? Um, and like can you offer anything going forwards? And I think this is the issue for England is that, and, and obviously where a lot of the issues of, of, of fans and people in the media are saying Southgate had so much attacking quality, but he's obviously decided to defend. I think that if anything for this England side, it was too early and like Michael's saying you're not stretching the opponent you're not buying time um, and I think if you look at the amount of territory that Italy took up throughout the whole game the amount of chances they created like they had enough to really win this in in 90 minutes let alone 120 and let alone obviously in the penalty shootout so yeah in terms of a you know to answer your question from the analyst point of view I don't think there is a kind of surefire at this point then you have to do this I think you you have to take into account all the all the context and everything that you have available to you in terms of players and, and the abilities of those players and things like that. But really, in this given example, with hindsight, and obviously the outcome is as it is, it's easy to say you should be stretching the game more. But it just feels that that is the best way. I mean, England were playing like they were 1-0 up in the 80th minute from the second or third minute. And I just think that's a it's a tough strategy to, to win out in the long run in most games. And it is interesting, isn't it, that... We've noted on a few of the notebook pods how England, having been ahead at times in previous games, had visibly rejected opportunities to counterattack, good counterattacking opportunities as well. And I sort of found it quite funny in a way, and it was working. And Michael, as, as you noted in the piece, as you noted just then, we always felt like England, with the personnel they had, and in some ways in, in how they'd played in previous either qualifying tournaments or in the Nations League, they could or should have had some joy in transition throughout this tournament. But looking back, they never even tried. Yes, uh, and that, that is an issue. I mean, I've seen teams do it before, turn down counter-attacking opportunities. I mean, Guardiola's Barcelona did it all the time, but Guardiola's Barcelona were the best team in possession you'll ever see. So, yeah, it was frustrating. I don't know whether it was about a lack of plan or just a, about a lack of calmness from players when they won the ball. But... Um, yeah, it was an issue and it does feel like a, a missed opportunity, doesn't it? Because 1-0 ahead, such an early stage, just to be coming on to England, that should have been the situation where England really relished uh, what was at stake and, and the, the situation it was facing. I mean, turned it into a bit of a burden, really, and, and yeah, just defended solidly. So that was, for me, those 65 minutes between the opener and the equaliser were, were the most disappointing part of the game. Mm. 
I mean, pre-match we spoke about Italy's central midfield likely having a, a pretty sizable ball-playing advantage over England's Verratti and Jorginho, particularly over Rice and Phillips. So we wondered if that would be the key aspect of the match. Do you think it was in the way that it played out? A little bit, but one, I think Italy were always going to dominate possession. Two, I think Italy were always going to dominate possession even more when England went ahead early. That was just normal. So from an English perspective, I don't mind the fact that Verratti and Jorginho had had lots of the ball. It was always going to happen. The issue really was what happened when they lost the ball and they did lose the ball on some occasions. England just didn't do enough. And yeah, the reality is England don't have the midfield players to compete with those two. I don't think they did whatever the the, the combination of players they played uh, in this game was. So um, yeah, it was, I mean, Verratti was excellent. I mean, he really, he was playing some really clever little passes and sometimes you have to hold your hands up and say that's what's going to happen. But yeah, they could have gone past him on the break because Verratti's not good defensively, resorted to a lot of fouls, I thought, as well, but could have been tested a bit more. Italy obviously got back into the game through a set piece from a from a corner and evidently they had the better of the, the match for the most part after England took the lead, as we're discussing. I, I made a note during the game that I didn't feel Italy looked that comfortable chasing a game. That that was what it felt to me. Of course, in the end, they won the game. But uh, yeah, I guess I just wanted to flag up that I didn't feel like they were slicing England open. No, I agree with you. It reminded me a little bit of the kind of watching Mourinho's Tottenham at times with England. He was often complaining that they got unlucky with deflections or dodgy decisions or set-piece concessions. But if you invite pressure for 85 minutes of normal time, and 30 minutes of, of extra time, obviously, there's a chance one of these things can go against you. And I think that the goal was a little bit lucky. I mean, the bounce off the post falls nicely for Bonucci, but I think just with the amount of pressure they had, they were getting the ball into the box so much more and therefore were more likely to, to get a break. If we look at the numbers for the game, specifically around, around XG and then the shots we'll get to after, but um, Italy uh, at the end of 90 minutes had 1.8 XG, England around 0.5. And I think there were a couple of opportunities which were really, really good chances. I mean, one that obviously the goal, uh, but the other one that sticks in my mind is the the kind of quarterback pass over England's whole team from Benucci and for Berardi in behind. And that felt like a very, very good um, opportunity as well. So I think, yeah, they kept kept knocking on the door, but... Again, with England, I'm just pulling the the shot numbers up now, but they had one shot in the first half, which obviously was the goal, three in the second half, and then two in total in extra time. So what's that? Six shots in total in 120 minutes really isn't enough to kind of stretch Italy at the back, and I just think they could keep coming. Although I would say England defended the box quite well at times. They always had like a lot of bodies between the shooter and the goalkeeper. Pickford had to make a few saves, but... There was, a, I think, a Bernadeschi free kick, which he could have spilled but handled pretty well. Chiesa had a, a shot in the box, but there were enough bodies there to kind of suppress the suppress him from having a whole view of the uh, a view of the full goal. So, yeah, I think I think England defended as best they could have given the circumstances, but Italy definitely had enough chances on the night to to win more comfortably than they did in the end. Uh, and Michael, you were fairly strong in your belief that Chiri Mobile was perhaps not the best striker to lead the line for, for someone going deep into the European Championships. And I wondered whether you were patting yourself on the back at all when Italy evidently had their best spell of the game, their most dangerous spell of the game, immediately after Immobile came off, him really having very little impact on the game up to that point, I think. Yeah, I, I would have been patting myself on the back if I wasn't biting my nails at the prospect <laughs> of Italy suddenly improving. But yeah, I, 
I think he's quite limited in mobile. I mean, the recent history of international tournaments tells you that there's lots of strikers who don't score many goals who end up leading the line for the the side winning the tournament. Giroud, obviously, at the last World Cup, most obviously. But yeah, I didn't think he offered much coming towards the ball or going in behind, really, in the semi-final or the final in Mobile. Um, and yeah, Italy got better, I thought, when Insigne moved in to become the, the central forward. You can call him a false nine, I suppose. Um, I think that was their best spell. And, and to me, it felt like the goal was kind of coming. Um, and yeah, Mancini deserves credit for a couple of his tweaks, I thought, worked quite well. And it's also worth pointing out from Italy's perspective, I thought their best attacker by a long way was Chiesa. He ran with the ball so well, can shoot from, from either flank, really, with either foot. And, and he went off injured. He, he got injured, I think it was by Phillips, accidental thing. But I think if England's best attacker had got, unfortunately, uh, taken off through injury, we probably would have had a bit of a moan about it. So didn't didn't hear any of that from Italy fans. Obviously, they won the game, but that was a big blow to them. And, and they coped relatively well with uh, Bernadeschi coming on. And he didn't have that much influence on the game, but he did score his penalty for the second game in a row. So certainly contributed. Yeah, I think Chiesa is one I'd like to, to pick back up on there briefly because I think I was fairly harsh on him in a previous podcast saying that some of his decision-making isn't isn't great at times because I feel that there are a lot of times where he would pick up the ball deep. There's one particular moment with Declan Rice where Rice had two or three times when he could have bitten back and tried to tackle him and Chiesa kind of got past him with ease. So yeah, I probably just want to cover my own tracks here. More that I think that he was, like like you're saying there, Michael, like very handy coming from both flanks. I think he's an excellent runner with the ball and some of his decisions to shoot and you know, the angles he picks are kind of kind of not the best, but I think that there's enough there. It's pretty raw, but if you can get that game intelligence in him, I think he could be a, a really special player. I'm pleased you've changed your mind because he's, uh, he's, I mean, his, his dad was one of my favourite players. Uh, the first ever like foreign football jersey I had was... A Fiorentina shirt with Enrico Chiesa on the back. So as soon as I saw his name pop up in Fiorentina's youth system, I was very excited. And he plays a lot like his dad, actually, different position, but shots from difficult angles really was Enrico Chiesa's speciality. So I quite like that his son pretty much plays in the same way. So Italy's changes, for the most part, certainly that double sub around the 55th minute, definitely improved their performance at that time. Uh, Michael, Tom, any thoughts on Southgate's changes? We saw Saka on for Trippier and Henderson on for Rice, uh, both around the 70th minute. And then then 10 minutes into extra time, Grealish on for Mount. And then, of course, the the double substitution, Rashford and Sancho on for Henderson uh, and Walker, which saw, uh, quite entertainingly, Rashford playing right wing back, actually defending quite a dangerous ball into the box fairly well, sort of shepherding it out for a goal kick at one point. Uh, What did you make of of Southgate's changes? It's it's obviously easy to look back on a disappointing night and and criticise. What did you feel at the time? What's the correct analysis here? Yeah, it's it's interesting we've seen with Southgate that, I mean, he's averaged 2.9 substitutions per game. So definitely not made the most of of the five and six available to him in added time. And that's, I think, the second fewest after Ukraine. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of intrigued by, I guess, that trend. And, and we've definitely not made the most of, of subs, I feel. Although there was obviously the, the Grealish sub on and then off again quickly against Denmark, which was, uh, was notable. And I think a similar one happened in this game as well with Henderson coming on and then off again. But my main issue really with the subs, is that the last one was during an Italy corner. And I guess you've got to gamble because you don't know when the ball is going to get out of play and if you're going to get the chance to to get the players on. But bringing Sancho and Rashford on when England have a corner to defend, Walker and Henderson, far better players in the air defensively, that's you know most of their jobs. That just felt like it could have been a bit of a, a mishap, especially given Italy's 
abilities from corners since we've seen how dangerous and creative they've been. So that for me was was the questionable part of the substitutions. Um, although I imagine Michael's got some more thoughts on, on personnel choices. Yeah, I just think they didn't particularly change the game, did they? I think England's problem for me, probably beyond the substitutions, was just the fact that, you know, having having defended really very deep for 65 minutes, it's then difficult to come out and play. I thought Saka had a difficult role in that. It was almost like he had the responsibility to put England on the front foot and that was that was pretty tough. Henderson, I understood the, the point of bringing on Henderson. I think he did well as a sub in the previous game, but thought played quite badly, to be honest. A couple of heavy touches and conceded possession. I was surprised Mount stayed on so long. I thought Grealish could have could have come on a little bit earlier to inject a bit of uh, a bit of forward momentum into England's attacking play. And then, yeah, it's a good point by Tom. I was down that end of the ground and the players were quite frantic you know organizing uh, organizing when the, the players were coming coming on to defend the corner but personally speaking i don't have an issue with um with bringing on players specifically to take a penalty i mean i can remember games where that's worked very well and i also think it's reasonable to ask rashford to play right back for a minute so that you can get him on the on the pitch in place of a, a less competent penalty taker so yeah i thought that was that was all fine really this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Quite a lot of... uh criticism or dismay at England's display having been ahead lots of praise for Italy but of course at the end of 120 minutes the match was drawn and it was only in a shootout that the trophy was decided do you have any notes on the penalty shootout I think I know us three quite well by now to maybe guess that um, you know serious and emotional penalty analysis is probably not really our bag in fact it's an area that I think maybe more than any other in football discourse which is saying a lot uh, is impacted by huge outcome bias um, but Michael you are also a man who has some strong opinions and you're someone who has studied major tournament football for a long time any notes on the penalty shootout good or bad Persons, but I don't really have any issues with England's takers or order or anything I just think it's clear from everything we we've learned that Southgate they did a lot of research and a lot of preparation for all this and they have more information than than us and I just I trust Southgate to get his preparation for things right I was actually more interested in the Italy penalties because um I mean I read an interesting article by Ben Littleton today who's written a, a book called 12 Yards about penalty shootouts and there's loads of stuff about statistics in there and I was particularly intrigued by the fact that, and I, I think I mentioned this stat in a previous podcast we did, that very few sides win a second penalty shootout in the tournament. Um, Italy obviously won one in the semi-final and Ben had done the research and said it was um, only a 35% success rate taking into account the 26 uh, second penalty shootouts of teams in the Euros, the World Cup, 
Copa America, the AFCON, the Asian Cup and the Gold Cup. And the interesting thing is that the four, and again, Ben pointed this out in his article, the four Italy players who took a penalty in both shootouts changed the side they went to in the second tournament. So I wonder whether that explains why the second success rate is generally lower, because presumably you, your first kick is gem, generally going to be your favoured side, and then you're going to a, diff, a more different position here. Of course, Italy won the tournament, uh, won the shootout, but actually they only converted three out of five. So it wasn't like either side covered themselves in glory, and it's the obvious thing to say, but Rashford's penalty is a foot away from it being advantage England, and maybe the shootout would have gone very different. Yeah, I'd largely, I'd agree with a lot of that. I think I'd probably start there by saying, I think Harry Maguire's penalty is one of the best I've ever seen. Just the the sheer technique, the kind of, I just think it's just the way he steps up and approaches it and he's just absolutely just swinging his leg at it. And I've watched the video of him breaking the camera probably 30 or 40 times at this point. So I thought that was that was a, a great one. But putting my kind of colder, more analysis-focused hat on, I just think England were, I mean, just unlucky, right? Like, Penalty shootouts are the best of times, the coin flips. I think a lot of the analysis done to suggest that if you go first, you're more likely to win has now, I think, more recently been found to be not the case in a kind of larger study of, of more penalty shootouts and games. And I'm kind of intrigued by England's stance of, uh, of they've obviously collected the data on the league performances of penalty takers and allegedly Steve Holland as well has kind of captured the the data from training as well to give them a good idea of who the best penalty takers are in training. Now, I get that. It makes sense. You want to be as informed as possible. But I think the, the toughest thing, of course, is like how do you recreate that environment of all the pressure and all the stress? And I mean, how do you simulate in Bukayo Saka's mind the position he's about to be in before he steps up? And you can see by watching him, like his body language, he's he's unbelievably stressed at that moment. And like, just because you can slot seven of eight on average in training is completely different. So, yeah, I'm I'm very intrigued by by the you know the subs to bring those guys on, by having those guys by the order, uh, and I'm interested to see. I mean, we'll never hear it, but when England do their own post mortem, will they think that that was the right decision or not? Because obviously, again, outcome bias. We probably think it's not. Um, but I just think penalties are such a, uh, I mean, they're a coin flip, really. And I don't think they can be too hard on themselves for losing that. I think the other thing as well to, to make a point of is Jordan Pickford saved the Jorginho penalty. And I think his technique for that is arguably the best we've seen. You just wait. Like, I think he was very much focusing on just wait until he strikes. And then just you have to go hard wherever Jorginho's gone. And George, he never hits it hard. He just waits till you've moved and he slots it in. And yeah, that was a... A very very light moment uh, on a quite you know poor evening by the end of it, but I thought that was a. It, it's now probably the best practice in the handbook for how to save a, a Jorginho penalty. Mm. Apt that the the goalkeeper probably in the world who likes to get the rave on the most, um, very much waited for the drop on on that occasion. <laughs> um, would it be? Let, let's do some top line stuff before we wrap it up. Michael, start with England. Obviously objectively a very very good tournament uh, a good display for large parts of every single game um until the final would it be fair to say that you wouldn't criticize Southgate's overall approach from the start of games and how he set the team up and personnel selection decisions 
but would still potentially have those same reservations as you had a few years ago about in-game strategy uh, and adapting to various situations that cropped up? Yeah, broadly speaking, I think the caveat to that is I'm not entirely sure it was the right formation for either the semi-final or the final. I think he maybe could have gone the other way around, played a back five against a Danish back five and gone for a back four against Italy. But I don't think it really shaped the game that much. I don't think you can call it a massive blunder. But yeah, it does seem to be the in-game things that, that cost England. But in fairness to Southgate, it seems to be a big issue for England. I mean, England always do well in the first half and then tail off. You can go back to, you know, World Cup 2002, that was the case against Brazil. 2004, England started well against Portugal. I mean, it does, off the top of my head, almost all the major tournament exits have seen England really just lose it in the second half of games. So maybe it's not just a tactical thing. Maybe it's something about kind of what we spoke about earlier, not keeping control of the ball and allowing too much pressure and that kind of thing. But yeah. It does seem to be a pattern. Hmm. And and Tom, Italy, the champions, were the Euro winners for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think we saw it in the in the first game against Turkey. And just from that moment thinking these are a very good side and there's a reason where they came into the tournament with such a long and beaten run. So um, yeah, I think in between kind of the use of the squad, the inventiveness from set pieces... They've obviously not got the individual quality in certain certain areas. Obviously, we've spoken quite a lot about Immobile. Um, but I think at times they made it work for themselves. I mean, Spinazzola, Spinazzola sorry, arguably player of the tournament if he if he stays fit, um, was able to kind of do it at both ends. Technically great midfield and then just exciting going forward. So, yeah, as... If we try and be as neutral as possible, then yeah, I think they probably are the the worthy winners in the end. Michael, you were pretty vocal a few weeks back, nothing to do with Italy at the time, that your distaste for any team that wins back-to-back knockout games on penalty (laughs) shootouts. That was Italy's pathway to to their crowning moment. But for you, overall, the best team in the competition? I I don't know. I mean, there were so many games decided on penalties. I think probably Italy and Spain were the best two teams, I would say. I think Spain outplayed Italy in the semi and were really unlucky not to win. But it's often like that in tournaments. You've just got to put yourself in the best situation and sometimes it comes down to fine margins. Nisley probably were the most impressive side in the group stage against, you know, obviously the group stages against lesser opponents. In the knockout stage, I wouldn't conclusively say they were the best side, but uh, they were one of them, shall we say. Here's a note I made uh, on the tube home. Despondent, sad, but still thinking about the game properly. I wrote the highest scoring Euros tournament the stat that we had on the last pod, and yet I'm still feeling like it reinforced what Michael has spoken about plenty before, and Tom as well, that dependable defensive displays are crucial to winning major international tournaments, more so than being a team that creates a ton of chances compared to others. To me, it felt a bit like a tournament won by those with the fewest bad moments or moments of weakness rather than the most great moments. How much of that was the emotion and alcohol talking. I mean, I broadly agree with that. I the one, I mean, I've, I've just given Spain a lot of credit. The one thing I was not sure about them was the partnerships, and particularly the partnership at the back. Um, they made a couple of bad errors. England and Italy had good centre-back partnerships. Stones and Maguire, Benucci and Chiellini. You can pick any of those two for a team of the tournament. I don't think people would have any question marks. They're also nicely balanced partnerships. Very obviously one hard man and one ball player, broadly speaking, I would say. Although, to be fair, the hard man can also play ball, but you know what I mean. So, yeah, that is um, that is what I look for with the major tournament winner. And I think it does it does play a part in knockout games. The, the caveat is you do need to win penalty shootouts as well, you know. I mean, that is a fact. That has been a factor for Italy and we would be uh, remiss not to 
not to make the point that were they were they if they were less good at penalty shootouts they could have easily gone out in the semi-final so yeah fine margins and how will you look back on the the tournament as a whole personally speaking i think it's been a great tournament i don't think there were any great sides there probably hasn't been a really great international side for quite a while probably since spain i would say and i don't think there were too many great individual performances there was no zidane at 2000 there was no xavi in 2008 there was no iniesta in 2012 there was no matthias salmon euro 96 i kind of was still in the ground when they gave Donnarumma the player of the tournament award and thought Donnarumma really and then I didn't think anyone else was robbed I think he's probably one of about 10 players you can make a case for um but yeah I, I really enjoyed the tournament I think um the uh, the presence of fans back in the stadium just gave it a real energy that we would desperately missed from football over the last year and uh yeah overall really enjoyed it it almost feels like I mean Michael said there that there's not really been a great international side although I probably agree with that. I think that teams have played fairly well together. And it just feels that, you know, is this just a product of football now has evolved so much where there's so much preparation tactically, analytically, physically, you know, mentally, everything that a team can do to give themselves the best chance of winning is thought about now. And teams are just much more well-oiled, cohesive systems. And from that, you just can't have, or you have far less an impact of a single player who's, great and they bring the level of everyone else up far higher so I feel this is probably a tournament where most players are putting up a 7 out of 10 and therefore the eight, the 8 out of 10s which we did see which are maybe the likes of I mean I think Paul Pogba if France can get a bit further and he continues his level is easily the player of the tournament but they went out when they did and you can't you can't give someone play the tournament when they go out in the uh, the round of 16. So I think it's the the right take. And um, yeah, we'll see whether that continues at the World Cup next year as well. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I think that's a good way of of summing it up, Uh, Tom. I was thinking, as Michael mentioned, Donnarumma being player of the tournament and not having that many people who could feel hard done by. A lot of 
eight out of ten performances, a lot of them, but possibly no, possibly not even a nine out of ten or a ten out of ten. And and you can see in the team of the tournament itself, of course, you know these are subjective in a certain way. And and for UEFA, they obviously prioritise, they weight towards those who went further in the tournament. You know, we spoke about so many guys like Pogba and Spinazzola, especially who, although his team won, was injured in the in the quarterfinal and. Apart from Lukaku, there's no one in the team of the tournament that didn't reach the semi-final um, with their nation uh, other than Spinazzola, who was injured. So the team of the tournament officially was Donnarumma and then a back four of Kyle Walker, Bonucci, Maguire and Spinazzola, all English and Italian back five. And then Hoiberg, Jorginho and Pedri in midfield. Pedri also won the young player of the tournament, which I think everyone seemed pretty uh, pretty happy with. And then a front three of Chiesa, Lukaku and Raheem Sterling. Now, Michael, as discussed, doesn't think that anyone played particularly well across the whole tournament. So, Tom, I tasked you with putting together our our zonal marking team in the tournament, which I guess has some of the same names as in the official team, uh, but also some suggested alternatives. Yeah, I think I tried to go for anyone not in the official team, just so we're fully, fully alternative. But in goal, Jordan Pickford, probably just because I feel he is level for one reason or another for England, seemingly is, is always above that of his, his former Everton, so I thought he was good enough. Had more to do as well than Donnarumma. Yeah, I think he had more to do, um, although having said that, there were a couple of times where he was quite nervous on the ball, especially against Denmark, which doesn't feel like his game, but I think overall, I mean, he was he was good. Backline, I think, again, it's probably the important caveat with any team in the tournament is that apart from maybe the, the actual UEFA one, I don't think this team would particularly play too well on paper, but um, this is fantasy football and none of it is going to happen anyway. Um, so Denzel Dumfries at right back, uh, Simeon Kier for footballing and non-footballing reasons in centre-back along with John Stones, who I think you could argue should be in the, the UEFA team of the tournament as well. Wakim Mailer at left back, uh, although I think for those full-backs, either Vladimir Soufal or Jordi Alba should be honourable mentions. I think they've both been pretty pretty solid solid as well. Midfield of, of Calvin Phillips, Pogba and Busquets. I just thought from watching Busquets in person at Wembley and the amount of times Ali sat next to me going, how has he seen that? I just think that is a, a solid metric for Busquets still having it and still still being you know good at football. Pogba again, uh, I think that he, he had a, as good a individual tournament as anyone. It's a shame we didn't get to see any more of him, but obviously collectively France weren't too good. And Calvin Phillips, I was I guess somewhat surprised that he had such a a starring role for England as he did especially in the role as well I mean you think of him as more of a a bit more of a six for Leeds someone who's, who's maybe sitting a bit deeper and certainly not getting as far forward as he does for England so I think that showed his adaptability um, and definitely you know should be a player who's going to get 40, 50, 60 caps ring at least from this point I just thought he was really really impressive so he's in there Danny Olmo again Probably one that's a bit biased from seeing him in person, but I just thought he was a completely different option for Spain. Shows why there's, there's so much... I guess he showed his versatility for Leipzig. He's played a ton of different positions under Julian Nagelsmann. I just thought he was excellent on the ball, on the half turn, dropped his shoulder so well at times and would be able to just charge into space. And I was just really, really impressed with him. Briel and Bolo was fantastic again, both as a kind of carrier and driver in possession um, scored a couple of goals and then I think he, he pressed defensively as well really nicely too and then the last player is Mikhail Damsgaard who uh, I think we profiled him in in the radar but I don't think we ever really 
predicted he'd be as integral to Denmark as he was. And I think that obviously shows that the random nature of football at times, you know, your, your star national player is is stricken and out of the tournament and he steps up and I thought he was fantastic. Completely different player really to Ericsson. Probably less of a passer, a lot more of a dribbler playing between the lines, but he was he was really, really impressive. And I think if Pedri doesn't win young player of the tournament, then Damsgaard's maybe second on that list. So uh, yeah, that would be the, uh, the alternate team of the tournament. Yeah, enjoyed... Everyone in that team's performances in the Euros just enjoyed the Euros a huge amount as a whole. And like non-ironically, would like to say thank you to both of you for playing a big part in that. Big part of enjoying these European Championships has been doing the ZM Euros notebook with you guys. So I was really pleased that we committed to it and very, very pleased that you guys at every juncture brought a ton of, of energy, a lot of expertise, um, spot on analysis. And it's it's uh, my pleasure to have the best seat in the house for it. So thank you to both of you. Huge thank you to everyone who has tuned in throughout the Euros. We've had such a blast. We've had a really good time. I've really enjoyed personally the notebook style that we did. And I hope that you guys enjoyed that as well. A little bit of a different offering to some of the major podcasts out there that have done such amazing work producing daily pods uh, as well. We're going to have a couple of weeks off now. Just just to recharge and to get ready for the new season but you'll be hearing plenty of us over the 21-22 season by the time that is ready to kick off we will be ready to bring you all of the best ZM style content that we can so please make sure you're subscribed so that when we are back you get the first episode freshly delivered into your podcast feed do let us know if there's anything that you'd like to propose for us ahead of the new season we're always open to new ideas for features special episodes anything like that we love hearing from you Uh, on twitter is probably the best place to find all three of us and to get in touch but we hope you've enjoyed listening to the euros notebook as ever make sure that you're subscribed to the athletic so you can read all of michael and tom's work and all of their talented colleagues as well if you head to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking you can sign up today for three pounds 49 a month that is a 30 percent discount uh, on a full priced annual subscription so make sure you do that ahead of the new season buy one for a friend give them the gift of the athletic as well what a nice touch that would be and thanks one more time for listening throughout the euros to the zonal marking euros notebook we'll speak again in a few weeks the athletic <laughs>